you know, God was just orchestrating. He was orchestrating this whole thing, and I'm consumed with myself and just couldn't see it at the time. You know, looking back through my story, I'm like, there he was, there he was, there he was, but I couldn't see it so much at the time. I was just paying. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast hosts. And y'all today, get ready to laugh and get ready to be encouraged. Mary Pat Hancock is from Tupelo, Mississippi, and you will hear that she is in a live gathering. And y'all, this, I just, the story's sweet and it's funny. Funny, funny. Anyways, we love it. She definitely had me laughing. I'm telling you what, she's going to encourage you to look for God in the details of your life because he showed up over and over again for her. That's right, Katie. And speaking of God in the details, as you guys know, we have a Bible study series called When God Shows Up, and we have two books available. The first, which has been out for about a year and a half, is called Discovering God and Stories of Hope. And now in August, you will be able to order Discovering God and Stories of Freedom. These are eight podcast stories based on the freedom that is offered through Jesus Christ. And so go to our website at storytellerslive.org and you can get all the details on how to pre-order. Here's Mary Pat. So we all heard one of my favorite songs, The Story I'll Tell by Naomi Rains, and um, tonight's story is going to be my story of the battles that he has won and the seas that he has parted so I could walk on dry ground. This is my story of how God showed up for me, and looking back, I can see him in every single moment. And I was often shocked through this whole process and and amazed and baffled and overwhelmed when specific prayers were specifically answered. But then I would think, well, that is specifically what I asked for or what you all asked for for me. Um, And of course, he blessed us with the answers that we wanted and needed. So a really good friend shared this quote with me <coughs> right at the beginning of my diagnosis. And it said, she said, you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. Let's move some mountains tonight. And when I say I'm looking at this with hindsight, 2020 hindsight, so many times I didn't feel or see God because I was so consumed with myself. And you'll get a kick out of it when you realize hindsight is talking about also I had colon cancer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's not a shame to talk about it anymore. So back when I was 47 years old in 2015, I was experiencing some really strange symptoms that were unusual for me. Bathroom symptoms that I didn't, you know, like to talk about with anybody. That's private business. So when all this started going on with me, uh, you know, of course, contacted Dr. Google. And um, I had diagnosed myself. And I had IBS. I was certain of it. I told everybody that's that's what's going on. And that was huge for me to even admit that. But um, when I mentioned these symptoms to my sister... And she said, just talk to your doctor about it. And I was like, what doctor? And, you know, I was thinking, 
that doctor, my God, she handles everything on the front. I didn't, you know, I didn't <laughs> talk about anything in the back. I didn't want to talk about that. So I didn't want to talk about any of these poopy kind of problems. I mean, I was the person that did not buy toilet paper until I was married. And then I hid it underneath, right? And then I hid it underneath everything in the buggy because that that's just private. And, you know, I teach kids, and, and they always come in right at the beginning of school, and they say, so-and-so was looking through that crack at me in the bathroom, you know. And I said, well, poke them in the eye. That is, that is your business. If somebody's looking, just poke through there. And uh, so anyway, I met with my beautiful, precious gynecologist, and I whispered these words to her. I see blood when I wipe. And I'm not going to go into details about how they check for that right at that moment, but um, I can tell you that was no fun. And uh, I'd never been through anything like that. <laughs> and it's a very simple check. But, yes, there was blood present. And she said, you know, it's probably hemorrhoids. And let's, let's just, she said, I probably started up just a little bit just then. She said, let's get a colonoscopy just to be sure. And I was like, well, that's just great. You know, I've never heard anything nice about a colonoscopy ever. And I'm not even 50. I'm not doing that. I was, I was thinking, I'm not, do, I'm not doing that. And so I went to dinner with some friends, and a friend was there that works for Digestive Health. And God put her there that night, and she talked me into it. And she said, if your doctor says this, there's nothing to it. This is what happens. This is what you do. You won't even know, and it will be the best nap you've ever had. I'm rolling my eyes, and I'm like, I don't know about all that. So January 24th, 2016, right when um, your deductible renews, um, <laughs> I had my first colonoscopy, and, and I was 47, so the deductible part didn't even come into play, actually. Um, but, you know, people always say it's the prep. So when, when they sent me, they said, who do you want to do your colonoscopy? And, and there's this silent rule that teachers have, and I've taught many of your children, and um, one of your grandchildren, actually. And um, there's a silent rule that we have. We call on people that we have taught their children because I've taken care of your baby for a whole year, and, and I'm going to need a little bit of tender love and care right now. So that's kind of a secret that, that teachers have, and we, we do take advantage of that. We do. So, but still, I was mortified. I even, you know, texted Dr. Amon's wife, and I was like, I am so sorry. I'm going to, he's going to have a, to do it, Colin. He's going to see my booty. Like, I am just so sorry. And she, she laughed. She was like, Mary Pat, it's fine. You're getting the greatest care from the greatest doctor. You're fine. You're fine. And you're going to notice that that teacher little trick that we have comes into play several times throughout this story. So here I am sideways on my side, my back to him. My booty's up in the air. I'm, you know, saying put the medicine in now. And he wants to talk about his children. <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, Oh, what? <laughs> so, 
I mean, it was just an ordinary day to him. But, and I don't remember much after that, but I do remember waking up right, it must have been just right after it, because I asked the nurse, I said, did everything go okay? And she said, um, the doctor's going to come by and talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay. But then I was like, something's not right. I don't know if it was some kind of intuition, but I knew right then that something wasn't right. So when I got back to the room, I told Gary, you know, I woke up for a second and I said, I don't think this is good. I think this is bad. And he's like, why would you even say that? Marybeth, it's fine. You're fine. And then I asked him if I had my sunglasses on. And he's like, no, that's, you know, the little oxygen thing. (laughs) So he's thinking she's crazy. But then he realized that everybody else around us was getting dismissed and checked out except for us. And he started wondering, like, what's going on as well. So when Dr. uh, Amon came in, you know, he said, sit up, got to talk to you. Let's talk about this. Um, What I have seen is cancer. I've marked it, and I think it's an an easy, you know, we're going to get it all. We're going to resection your colon. And um, I want you to go ahead and see a surgeon today because you're already prepped. You've already been through the prep. Maybe they can schedule surgery for tonight or tomorrow or something like that. And, you know, at that moment, I just went blank. I don't remember much of anything else after that. He started texting and calling, you know, Sherry and Julie and my sister. And, you know, we we all just kind of didn't have any feeling, but just, what in the world? I mean, what in the world? So um, this teacher trick came into play again when he called Dr. Gilliland, Dr. Um, David Gilliland, because I taught his son as well. (laughs) And um, so he said, come on and come to my office, Mary Pat. And um, my only prayer at that moment was to let it be contained. I, I just, that's what I just kept coming back in my mind, like, let it just be contained. Mary Pat, I've seen every, all the scans, the everything, the video, the, you know, we can get this. We're going to resection your colon. That just means we're going to cut it, take it apart like a hose, and put it back together. We're going to cut part of that part out. And he said, it's a big surgery. You're going to be in the hospital for eight to ten days, and I, I blacked out at that point. I was like, I can't sit in a staff meeting for 20 minutes. I mean, I... I I'm not going to be able to stay at the hospital for eight to ten days. I had to get my plans situated because I knew I would be out until, you know, for several weeks and scans and blood work and things like that and a lot of waiting and a lot of dreading things. But all during that time, it was a feeling in your throat like, you know that feeling right before you cry and it kind of burns a little and your eyes are like, but I couldn't. I couldn't cry. I would get to that point and I would see somebody and I would think, I'm not going to cry because I don't want people to feel sorry for me or, you know, I just wanted their prayers. I just wanted their prayers. But I didn't, at that point, we're sitting at the surgeon still and I I just didn't want to um, go home. I wasn't ready to go home and face it. So Gary said, well, it's lunchtime. Where do you want to go? And I picked the stables, <laughs> which is a local bar with an alley. And I don't know if I just, um, the food was good because I wasn't going to eat. I don't know if I just needed a 
afternoon lunchtime beer. I don't know, but um, or maybe God had a plan. At that this point, I, I there is something that I regret in my story. I didn't want to see my parents yet. They knew my sister had contacted them, and I didn't want to see them to see me afraid because I'm their baby. And that is one thing that I regret because they needed to see me. They needed to put their hands on me. And I just was so afraid that they would see me afraid. And I didn't want that. I didn't want my fears to hurt them. And so I just said, no, not yet. So here we are at this bar. (laughs) And it becomes like a revolving door. Word spread quickly, and it was like, Cheers, you know, everybody's coming in and out and in and out. And um, Gary went out to the alleyway. He he was at his max at this point. We all were. And he just, it was foggy and rainy, and he just went out there to kind of collect his breath and his thoughts. And um, this man that works there that we've never met, he was working kind of in the back, but he came around into the alley and saw Gary. And Gary was obviously upset. His name is Arturo, and he said, he asked him what is wrong, and Gary told him, and he took the rosary off of his neck, and he gave it to Gary, and he said, you need this. Your wife needs this. It will find its way back to me when, I, when, I, when you're finished with it. It will find its way back. And so, you know, I just forever, I couldn't figure out why I picked the stables, but looking back, that's why. Arturo, we needed to meet Arturo that night. That night, my parents, I finally let them come over. I thought that I'd collected myself a little bit, and um, my dad brought me a buckeye. I don't know if you know about those. They're those little, they're like a nut, and you find them, and it's old tale is you rub them for good luck. He has his dad's, and so he wanted me to have one. So I still keep that rosary and that buckeye with me at all times. It's in my purse right over there. And so we got a good cry. We talked about it. We hugged. And the thing that I was most pleasantly surprised was their confidence, their positivity. They, at the same time, didn't want me to see them worried. And I needed to see their confidence. I needed to see that they believed that everything was going to be okay. And I fed off that strength and that courage because at that point I just really had none. So, so far, several things have happened that God had handled. My doctors, my students, my sub. And out of the blue, um, these two mentors that came from Saltillo High School were working in my classroom in the fall. And when all of this happened in the um, spring, spring semester, I mean in the second semester, they decided to continue to be mentors in my classroom and they were not getting high school credit for it at that point. They know that they knew that I needed stability in that classroom. And those girls did that for me. So that prayer that I had prayed for it to be self-contained through all the CT and PET scans and everything, it was called early and it was nowhere else. On February 1st, it was the surgery day, so I had to prep again the night before. 
And, you know, I, I, last time I had Netflix and, you know, done crossword puzzles and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But that's, this time I enjoyed, and I say that in quotes, lots of praying that time. I was begging at that point. Because I'm going to tell y'all, y'all, this girl was scared. I was scared. I'd never had major, any kind of major surgery. So when we arrived at uh, North Mississippi Medical Center that morning for Dr. Gilliland to do my surgery, it was like this. There were so many people there to pray and, and be there for me and be there for my family. And it was overwhelming. I couldn't even greet people because I, I, was, I, my, I was full. I was full. I couldn't handle anything else. So I stayed to myself. I stayed with my family, but I knew all my warriors were there. And when I, they called me back, Gary went back with me. I felt confident. I felt at peace. I felt at peace. And that's why everybody was there. I remember is waking up and, and trying to get the nurse's attention because somebody was yelling and needed help. And I was trying to tell her, and then I realized, well, that's me yelling. <laughs> oh my goodness. And what's going on? Not, you know, pain when you first wake up they've got to make sure you're in pain and I was trying to tell her somebody's in pain but it was me that was in pain and so they gave me some pain meds but I kept feeling like I was pee-peeing in the bed I kept telling her I said I, I'm wet in the bed and she said you're not you have a catheter I was like I'm wet in the bed and she said you're not and so finally when she looked I was sitting laying in just a puddle of blood like it was rolling off into the floor. I remember looking and they were walking in it. And you know, they had to pick me up on a on a um, sheet and put a new bed up underneath me. And you know, I'm thinking, now this is it, this is it. I, don't, I didn't know you could have that much blood. I didn't know what was going down. So when they took me to the room, I, I wanted my sister in there, she's a, a nurse, and I wanted her. And they let her come in when they put me in the bed. And I kept telling her, I'm, I'm still wetting the bed. I don't know. I was bleeding. And um, so she got Dr. Gilliland back in there. And he, you know, said, this is going to stop. We, we've nicked something, but we're going to hope that this stops. So we don't want to have to go back in. And, you know, my blood was dropping pretty quickly each day. And I was just a hair's breadth within getting a infusion. But they don't want to give a fresh cancer patient surgery, an infusion. They want you to try, your body to try to heal and fight. So it did. My body fought and um, my prayer warriors fought because that was the prayer to stop that bleeding. And it did. God was there. And I guess what I'm trying to explain is even while I was totally out of it, when I was in pain, when I was passed out from medicine, when I, you know, you think, I'm not talking to God right now, so he, is he here? Is he here? And he's there. Everybody else was talking to God for me, and he was there. He was there. He's working even when I was not aware of it. Um, so my surgery was on a Monday. On that Wednesday, while I'm still in the hospital, my husband's mother was diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, my 
roller coaster collided with her diagnosis and it just kind of set up the perfect storm for him and he was very he was torn and I said look I have this support system I have my people my people are his people I've got this we're good you go take care of your mother so he did and he took such good care of her he did, but we lost her that May, and on her death certificate, it said colon cancer. She was, um, it was real high up in her colon, and, you know, but at the same time, the doctors that were curing me couldn't cure her, so it was, I, in my mind, it, it had to be one of us that goes, and it was her, and I, it didn't feel right, it didn't feel right. But she would have wanted it that way. She would have wanted Gary to live a happy life with his family. And we came to that conclusion after a long time of grieving that process. So then, while I'm still at the hospital, I'm starting to feel better. I'm, start, I'm able to get up. Uh, the horror of all horrors happened. And my... My nurse told me about these essential toots that you have to do. <laughs> I was not on board with that at all. And she, uh, she actually, and I hate this word, but she kept on calling it fart parties. <laughs> she said, oh, on this floor, we love the smell of gas. <laughs> and I was more And Dr. Gilliland, every morning, I could hear his little boots clacking down the hallway, and he'd say, she fart yet? <laughs> and I was just like... You know, blackout. I was like, I, I mean, I convinced my family growing up that I did not do that. <laughs> I told them I did it for years. I told them that I don't do that. So now I had to perform. <laughs> I, I, so the daily concern and the daily prayer began. Has she farted yet? <laughs> That's what my people were praying for. Because as soon as I did that and admitted it, I could go home. Because I was getting better. So, God answered that prayer. And, I, you know, I was praying, just let me touch just a little bit. And he answered it. I did, and I had to admit it. And I, told, I whispered it to the nurse. She celebrated. They do a whole celebration thing there, and that's just your gateway to get out of there. So all the prayers that had been answered, clear margins, not into my lymph nodes. Day seven, I tooted, got off my pain medicine, and I could go home. I was thankful and so happy to go home. I walked in and walked straight into the shower, and it was the best shower I've probably ever had. And um, But I had prayed to get back to school right after Easter, which was about seven weeks or so. When I got back, the day that I left, that Friday that I left before I had surgery on Monday, when I walked into school at Saltillo Elementary School, the whole staff 
everybody, the cafeteria, the custodian staff, every teacher had on a blue and white Team Mary Pat shirt. Because blue and white is, blue is the color for colon cancer. And everybody was Team Mary Pat. And that Friday we circled around and they prayed for me. And they said, we've prayed it away. It's gone. We've prayed it away. So when I got back to school right after Easter, they all had their shirts on again for me. And um, that is my profile picture. It's not, it's not the profile, it's the one, the background picture. But if you look at my profile, you'll see that picture. And they've got me just front and center and a little banner. That, And a friend described it. She said, Mary Pat, you must feel like you're walking on angels' wings. And I said, that's the feeling that I have right now. That's the feeling. That's perfectly describing how I'm feeling. So I was a frequent flyer at hematology oncology. Every three months I was having scans and um, blood work. They check your CEA, which is just notes if there's any growth in, in your body. And those, you know, numbers looked really good. I was every three months, and it moves to every six months, and they do like a nine-month check, and then they push you out to a year. And I was about, this was my four-year checkup, and I was about to be able to go one year and not have to go back. And that's the day that my numbers went crazy. My numbers were up. My CEA was up. Now I was not given chemo that round because they said they got it all. They got it all. I didn't fit the protocol for chemo. They explained it like this, that if 100 people had your surgery and it was clear and everything was clear the way it was, only 2%, two people, it comes back. And they're not going to treat all 100 people with chemo when it only comes back for two people. I was one of the two. But I was considered to be healed. And when you're a cancer patient... That five-year mark is the mark you wait for. You cannot wait to get to that. It's like the golden year, five years. If you're five years in uh, remission or you're cancer-free for five years, you, you feel like you've won the battle. Like everything kind of relaxes a little bit in your, in your gut, in your heart, in your head. Now, I wasn't feeling bad about this appointment. I had actually almost forgotten it. I had to call the nurse and say, I'm on my way. Sorry, I forgot and, you know, everything felt fine. Those next few days were full of panic, fear, first grade love. And I had not really opened it up to a lot of people because we thought that it just might be nothing. All the scans showed nothing. Everything showed nothing. Just that one CEA number was up a little bit. But they did find an enlarged ovary, so they thought, well, maybe that's it. And so I had those, my ovaries removed. That right after Christmas that, that year in 19 and at UAB. And I went back to school after Christmas break, and eight weeks later they followed up with more blood work, and my numbers were up more. So, you know, nothing had been found on any of the scans, and they said, we can't find anything, Mary Pat. And I know protocol, and so I just said, okay. I'm, I'm, I'll do what y'all say, I guess. I don't agree with this, but I don't know what else to do. And so I saw, and here comes God again, I saw Nurse Nan at Walmart just a few days later, and she said, you don't feel good about this, do you? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't. And she said, let's, um, 
let's set up for a, an MRI. And that's one that we haven't done yet. And I said, well, let's do it. So I was even told that that looked good. And we were, we were starting a little celebration with some friends and saying, okay, we're just going to wait and check, revisit this in a couple of months and see what's going on. But in the meantime, I had asked a friend who is a radiologist to look at my MRI. I said, just look at it. I taught his three children. <laughs> and I taught his niece and nephew. So he's like, sure, I'll look at it. So when we're starting to celebrate and feel a little, okay, we, we're, we're okay, we're, we're okay for a few months, he called and, and he said, no, you need to stop celebrating. Um, it's in your liver. It's metastasized, I bet, and it's in your liver. So, I mean, it went from, okay, we're going to breathe a little bit to straight back down into that just blank feeling of just total helplessness. So I called Ashley Gilliland, Marion's mom, and I sob and crying, and she said, just come to the office. Just let me, let me, this was like 8 o'clock at night, and she said, let me get to the office tomorrow. I'm going to look at everything and re let the radiologist read it again. I said, well, a radiologist looked at it, and he's a friend, and he looked at it with friend eyes, and he saw it. And she said, I will call you tomorrow. Let's, and I said, well, just, she goes, I will not give you bad news without a bottle of wine. I was like, okay, <laughs> great. So, so she called me to her office the next day, and, and she and Dr. Hill were working on a plan because she said, yes, it is in your liver. And so, you know, we went home and cried and, you know, confused. I mean, I would look at Gary. He would look away. I would look at you. Everybody's like, we don't even know what to do. We, we just don't even know. And that night there was a, she put a bottle of wine in my mailbox. So, so she scheduled an appointment four weeks away, the first available, four weeks away um, for a liver, let's see, oncology liver specialist at UAB. So this is when COVID is starting. And, you know, the talk of, are we going back after spring break? Are we, you know, everything was kind of starting to shut down and everybody was staying in and everybody was uh, quarantined in. And so I got put on lockdown right away because they knew surgery, chemo. They didn't know the plan because I had not seen him yet, but they um, went ahead and locked me down. And um, they kind of said the only thing that would uh, mess up you having surgery was if there was a blood shortage of any kind. And, you know, that's going to happen when something like COVID is going, you know, on. So two local companies here in Tupelo set up blood drives for me. And people could go and donate blood in my name and in my honor, which would help fill the blood banks so that I would get to have my surgery. And, you know, God was just orchestrating. He was orchestrating this whole thing. And I'm consumed with myself and just couldn't see it at the time. Looking back through my story, I'm like, there he was. There he was, there he was, but I couldn't see it 
so much at the time. I was just panicked. So Dr. Heslin explained um, everything to me. I was going to have a liver resection, which um, when they do that, they start cutting. They started cutting between my breast and totally underneath my right breast, all the way to my side. And they were going to take out the left section of my, uh, my liver. And, you know, he was concerned about COVID, but as it stood now, Everything was on go, and he was doing surgery the next week. So when I asked, well, what stage is this? You know, I was thinking, we caught this early. I he goes, four. It's four. And I was, I, I totally blacked out. I mean, I, I lost it. Because, I, you know, I'm thinking, four. I'm not going to see my baby grow up. I'm not going to see my grandchildren. I'm not going to, I mean... Horrible things raced through my mind. And he explained that when it, whenever anything metastasizes, it's considered stage four. It wasn't because it was so huge or massive. It was because it had metastasized. And so that got my attention real fast. I just really <laughs> kind of needed to see God at that moment. And I was waiting on a scan. I was... Um, at home, I'd taken the day off because I needed a couple of more scans before I could have surgery. And this was on February 17th, and my surgery was on February 25th. And God showed himself to me in a way that is unbelievable. So I'm home, and I went to a, a university called Harding University. And they have chapel every day at 9 o'clock. And it's a treasured time. It's a cherished time. If you're if you go to Harding, that is a time where you get to see everybody. Four thousand students are in one huge auditorium to worship for thirty minutes, and um, it's it's amazing. But I tuned in to the live broadcast of it. Uh, I've never done that. Never done that before. And I thought, let me, you know, what is going on at Harding? And this is a university that when Julie and I were there, there all 50 states were represented there. 30 countries, 32 countries were represented there, and there were only 4,000 students. So it's, we have friends from all over the world, literally. So, you know, that was a, a, a very endearing thing for me to get to tune into chapel that day. The president of the university was speaking on a book called Locking Arms by Stu Weber. And he talked about the commander of this group of soldiers would say, you go out together, you work together as a unit, and you come in together. And he told about a weary soldier that um, got tired and he couldn't carry his backpack, so somebody carried it. Couldn't carry his gun, so somebody carried it. They finally had to pick him up and carry him back. And it hit me that that's what my people were doing for me. They were carrying me back. We had been out, we had worked together, and y'all were carrying me back. Y'all were going to carry me through this. And I was weary. I was weary. And at the same time, the same day, my cousin sent me this verse, Psalm 94, 18 and 19. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love 
O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me great joy. Y'all were bringing me back. All in one piece, y'all were going to get me back over the finish line. So the day before surgery, we call University of Alabama, Birmingham Hospital, UAB. At that point, Gary could stay with me. They said, yes, nobody else can come, but he can come. He'll stay in the waiting room, and then he can stay with you in your room. This is going to be an 8 to 10 day process in the hospital. He will be your one person. So the morning that I got there, we checked in, and um, they called my name. And so I said, I kind of hugged him, and I said, I'll see you in just a minute. He had all my stuff, my purse, my insurance cards, my phone. You know, I packed a little bag thinking I was going to try to look cute or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I thought, surely after eight or ten days, I can do something. I don't know. So I said, I'll see you in just a minute. So when I was in there and they're setting up all my IVs and stuff, she was explaining that they would update him throughout the surgery and then they would update him daily after that. And I was like, no, he's going to be with me. And they said, no, they can't. You, you, you're going to do this by yourself. And I was like, I'm not. Y'all said last night that he could stay with me. You go ask him. And, <laughs> and she said, well, it changed overnight, and, and you're not allowed any visitors. I lost it. I lost it. Because I'm thinking, eight to ten days by myself after surgery? Like, and I said, well, and she knew I was, I was in full panic anxiety attack. And so... They were giving me some medicine to calm me down, and they went out to talk to him. And at the same time, they're telling him, he's, he's saying, are you telling her this? <laughs> and they said, well, we've already medicated her. <laughs> he said, well, I need some medication. <laughs> and the lady got my purse and my phone and my little overnight bag from him and put it in a locker somewhere and... and here I was, and it, it was still a couple of hours before my surgery, and I, I was literally could not breathe. I couldn't breathe. And my Thomas Street school, the school that I was at at that point, had um, all ordered T-shirts for me, and they all were wearing them, and they did a video because it was COVID. It was spring break. We were out of school. But they all did a video, you know, each person, and they all were showing their muscles wearing the shirt that said, her fight is our fight. So when I came to, after the surgery, I was in a um, dark room, and I saw the nurse sitting by me. I wasn't in much pain, but I woke up crying. She said, what is wrong? And I said, you need to call my husband. You need to tell him I'm okay. She said, we've been talking to him. He knows you're okay. And then I don't remember much after that. I didn't know nights or days for a while. Um, they would check mostly through a little window that they would adjust the blinds and look at me. They would come in to get blood. They would come in to give me medication or to check my pumps, but they didn't come in much. And um, I was lonely, and it was a no germs in. No germs were coming in. 
and nurses were spread more thin than humanly possible. I could hardly move. I was hurting, and intensity was high. It wasn't a calm feeling at all. Everybody was on high alert, which is not good for somebody trying to heal because I'm like, what are you worried about? Are you... Am I worried or, you, you know, <laughs> what do I need to be worried or can I go back to sleep? I, I watched a lot of Sanford and Son. <laughs> I remember that. The time before, when I was in the hospital, I watched a lot of Naked and Afraid. <laughs> so that was what the channel was on. And I, I didn't know how to change the channel. I didn't know how to do anything. But intensity was high. I just wanted Gary to handle everything. I couldn't really talk to people. I couldn't, I would, somebody would call and I would say, I'm good, I'm good, and get off right away. I just couldn't handle it. And um, when I did get enough consciousness to call Gary and talk to him, I realized that he had stayed in Birmingham. He didn't go home. They told him he could go home and come back and pick me up when I was ready to go home. And he had stayed in Birmingham. He had gotten a hotel in Bless him. He was eating gas station food and a Chinese restaurant. That's the only things that were open. Everything was closed. It was shut down. So they called Gary, said, you can pick her up in carpool. <laughs> Go through the little archway drive through and we'll put her in the car for you. And um, y'all can go home. This was after seven or eight days. I, I lost count. I don't know. But when I got home... Uh, my people were lying in the street on my my drive and clanging bells and running around. They some of them had on old um, prom gowns. I mean, it was like a celebration. And I said, "My people are his people. They welcomed me home. They carried me home, which is what." was intended. That's what God had in store. So, the, you know, a few weeks later, I went and got my staples out. Um, Gary couldn't go in. He dropped me off at the carpool, and I went in. I had to find my way through what floor he was on and how to cross over and couldn't walk hardly. I was walked. I needed a walker, actually, but they, you know, wanted me to not have one and straighten up and use my core. But, um, I found him. They got all the 4,700 staples out. Dr. Heslin said that there was another tumor growing there besides just that one. And so had we waited, like we were told when I was told it was clear, things would have taken a really different turn. God mm-hmm. was right there. So I went back through. the. I was sobbing by the time I got back to Gary and... Um, we got home, and on May 6th, my numbers were normal again, May 6th. So on May 13th, I got my hair cut, got a cute little sassy cut, and I got my port. And my friend Cindy's husband let me, well, I went to dinner with him one night, and he's, he had been through the same kind of chemo, and he said, ask me anything. I'll talk about it all. I'll talk about it all. And he let me just drown him with questions about what to expect. And a friend at church said to me about chemo, she said, it's 
no fun. You hear me? It's no fun, but it's doable. You're going to do it, and you're going to do it well. So we get to the best part of my story is the, the waiting room where people are waiting to get their chemo infusions. None, we're there by ourselves. Nobody can come in. We take the infusions by ourselves, but we became family because we were on a rotation. And I would see the same people every Monday. And we had a one that would sing for us. We had one that would read the Bible for us. These people became my people. And they were his people because every one of us were there for the same reason, but it was also an encouraging reason. And what did I have to feel sorry for myself? I would see people that little tiny old ladies and old men that were fighting champions. And I had nothing to fear. I had nothing to fear. All of them had been poked on, prodded on. Um, I had I had been in a deep depression because of all of this, and walking in on Mondays, seeing those cancer patients was actually a joy. And I mean, I told the little lady sitting next to me, I said, this was my first treatment. Well, she hugged me up. She prayed on me. She put her hands on me. I didn't realize that I would see them every Monday for the next six months, but... They were my people. And I was getting better, and some of them were getting worse. But I tell you, those people in the infusion nurses are God's people. They were there to make me feel better and to make me well. I wore a mask each infusion. My mom made masks at the time. And I had a fancy, cute mask at the time. <laughs> I took a picture of myself, my cute hair, and my cute mask. And I would post it on Facebook and say, treatment so-and-so at like 5 out of 12, 6 out of 12. So we were on a countdown, and I got to that halfway mark, and I thought, if I can just make it to the halfway mark, I'm going to be rolling downhill after that. When I got to that first mark, that halfway mark, I lost it and I said I cannot do this for another six and uh, three months. That I, I thought I, that would be a downhill moment, but I realized that's when the battle really began. And about treatment nine, I quit. I mentally quit, and um, I was just too tired. And my dad, I called Gary and I said I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. I've had enough. So he called my dad. My daddy got on to me <laughs> so badly, he said, I'm coming up there, and I'm sitting by you, and I'm getting an infusion too, because we are going to finish this, and you're going to get your little tail in that chair, and you're getting, and I was like, yes, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, here I'm 52 years old, and my daddy just about whipped my booty. <laughs> I got to ring the bell, and and I told the crew in the waiting room, I said, you know, this is my last time I'm ringing the bell. And I kind of felt bad about saying that. I, kept, I felt bad about it. I felt bad because they weren't ringing the bell. And you know what they said? 
They said, ring it loud. We want to hear it. That gives us hope. So I rang it loud. I did. And Gary got to come back there when I rang the bell. I looked horrible. I looked horrible. My face was the size of sun, uh, sunshine. I mean, it was horrible. I had been on steroids for six months. And I walked out in the parking lot, and all my people were out there cheering for me when I walked out. My mom gave me a, a little bell ornament that was on my grandparents' first Christmas tree. So I don't even know how old that is. I mean, yeah, so I have that little bell in, displayed in my house, but she gave me, all of five children and her, her siblings all got one because there were five left. She gave me hers on the day that I rang the bell. So I follow up as I'm supposed to, and as of today, I'm one year and almost five months cancer-free. I still have to walk through where the chemo patients are to leave my oncology appointments. And I kind of prep myself. I take a breath before I walk through there. And I look at their eyes and I nod. And I'm like, you're good, you're good. You know, you just, they're battling. Some of them are still battling. But one of my greatest proofs that God hears me, he hears me. When I started back to school, this I took that year off, chemo year off, and um, decided I'm going back for one more year. Didn't want chemo to end my career that I love dearly. And I was just talking to God one morning. I have about a five-minute drive to school. And I was just saying, you know, God, I, I'm ready. I've never taught a child that has had cancer or has um been touched by cancer in that way but if you need me to handle that lord i'm ready i can do it i'm ready and that day a little girl was put in my class named lily and she is a saint jude patient she has battled leukemia and she was put in my class that very day he hears us he hears us. She's here tonight with me and her mama. <laughs> She's a hero. And I went straight to my principal when I found out she was coming. I said, She's mine. I'm going I don't I'm going to put her in my class. I'm gonna get on your computer <laughs> and I'm gonna put her in my class because I need her. I prayed for her this morning. She's like, do it, just do it. That's fine. <laughs> And, and we also have a little girl in our class whose mom is battling breast cancer. So I've been able to help her. You know, she, she comes in and she's like, I think my mom is getting chemo today. I'm not sure. And she's shaky because you're so overwhelmed. And she, her and her brother are little. They're eight years old. So I text her mom. I'm like, are you getting chemo today? She said, no, I'm just getting my port. So I get her over there. I'm like, this is my port touch it. This is what your mom's doing today. She's going to cut her hair today. Like, I've been able to walk her through it. I talked to God in August about that. These two babies are in my room. So, 
Looking back, it's been an emotional roller coaster, and I have remembered things that I have forgotten throughout the process. I remembered feelings that I had during some of the deepest, darkest, loneliest times. And I realized that some things I, I need to be sure to tell fellow warriors who ask for advice. Take care of your mental being. It's tough. It's tough. Take all the medicine. Take it. <laughs> go to all the counseling. Do it. Just go. Just go to counseling. Take the medicine. The battle's not easy or fun, but it's doable. Listen to your body. Be attuned to any changes. Talk to me and be persistent with your doctor. I'll be persistent. I'll text your doctor in a heartbeat. <laughs> and ask for all the prayers because I promise you, if you ask for prayers, people will pray for you. They will do it. Our people are praying people. My people are praying people. So Jeremiah 29, 12, God hears us. Verse 13 you will find him there waiting for you when you can't do it by yourself anymore. In verse 14, he answers us and rescues us. And just look for God to be there. He's there. In hindsight, <laughs> I've been able to target exactly the times that he was there when I couldn't see it. This process has been very healing for me. Um, that's how he works. He works through your people. He works through your people. They will, care, they will carry you in. God was there in every moment. He was waiting on me to see Him, feel Him, trust Him, and not be so unbelievably astonished when He answered specifically questions, prayers. He answered specifically. It just took me a bit to realize that. He had already moved the mountain. He just needed me to get on board with him. Y'all, y'all probably know this, but Mary Pat, I love her. She's my girl. When she was talking about the hindsight of the Lord. <laughs> just, I could just picture her in, in the doctor's office talking about her symptoms. I mean, it, it truly was a story that you laughed out loud. Yes. yes. But in the middle of all that humor, there truly was a faith mm -hmm. and God kept building her faith and showing himself. We love to say and talk about God showing up in the details of life. And uh, Mary Pat certainly did that. I did relate to the fact that she, you know, in that first diagnosis said, I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I related that in my own breast cancer journey mm -hmm. um, of just feeling like, hey, I got this. Yeah. And you really do have to let down your guard and yeah. say, hey, guess what? I'm scared. Right, um, yeah. and, and so I just love to see her talk through yeah. that. And I thought, too, you know, her story, we titled it His People or My People because mm -hmm. it was really a story about community. Right. Yes. And I loved, you know, so many aspects of that, of how they supported her just time and time again, not only through, you know, of course, prayer, but just taking care of her family and all the T-shirts that were oh, made for her. So I want a T-shirt. Um, but just I loved that aspect of the story. Story and just how God showed up in her mm -hmm. life through all of the different people. And, you know, multiple times in her story, she mentioned that she wasn't in a place to see him, that she mm -hmm. was wrestling or she was afraid or she was in a full-blown panic. Yeah. And she, she's like, looking back, he never left me. <laughs> right, you know, right. in the moment, one of the things she said when she was in the hospital is, God, if I'm not praying, are you there? Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a real statement of feeling like we have to do all the work mm -hmm. to make sure he's going to show up. When in reality, he's like, you don't have to do that. You don't yeah. have to do all that work. You get to rest. 
your people surrounding you, which is what she talks mm-hmm. about, have that covered. I've got that covered. You get to rest. And I just thought that was such a sweet statement. For her to be in that hospital room for eight days mm. all oh, by herself. By that just, I know. As someone that doesn't like to be by themselves. It well, was, and she's it was, probably a lot like you. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> exactly. But just, again, it was just so sweet of the Lord that, that she felt him right mm-hmm. there. You know, she said he had me in the palm of his hand the whole time. And one final note. We all want her to be the teacher of either our child <laughs> yes. or our grandchild. Oh, that sweet little tie-in to. Again, God showing up. I mean, she prayed and he answered immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, we hope that y'all have enjoyed the story as much as we have. Share it with friends. This is a great story for encouragement and hope. We all know someone walking through cancer in some capacity or some kind of physical something. And so we would just encourage you to share this. And as you share the podcast with a friend, if you have not given us a review recently or even just click the rating button uh, in your podcast app, that helps people find us. And so if you could give us a, a quick review in your podcast app, we would absolutely appreciate it. And we really do check those. Mm-hmm. We really read the reviews and we are always <laughs> so thankful. I know you hear people say that on a podcast, but it's true. We read them and it does help people find us. And so thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next week. We have one last announcement before the end of this episode. We are doing a survey and we would love to hear from you, our friends and listeners. We are already looking to the fall for everything from the Bible study to the podcast episodes to live gatherings, and we want to know what you want to hear. We want to know what resonates with you, what stories you love, maybe what stories you've heard too many of. We want you to be honest, and in return, we have a prize for one of the people that fills out the form. And so your email is not required. You can fill this out totally anonymously. But if you do want to leave your email address with us on this survey, you will be submitted to win a Storyteller's Prize Pack of a t-shirt, a brand new When God Shows Up Bible Study that does not even come out until August, and a $50 Amazon gift card. And so all that is for filling out the listener survey. The link is in the show notes below. It's on our website at storytellerslab.org. It'll be on our Instagram page. You can find this link everywhere. This will run from June 14th to June 30th. So we would be so thankful and so appreciative if you would take some time and tell us what you love so we can better serve you. Bye.